0: Welcome to the University of Bath's Research with Impact podcast. I'm Roland Pease, and in this series, I've been speaking with some of the university's world-leading experts whose research is tackling the challenges that face society. For this edition, I've been speaking to guests at the front line of reducing preventable diseases. I've been following the research of Professor Arzul Sartbeiver for many years. She started out in an earth sciences department studying the most basic of minerals, quartz. It's what we see spread out before us in dirty form on the beach, sand. But here, in the Department of Chemistry and the Centre for Sustainable and Circular Technologies, her research has taken a dramatic turn. It does still concern sand, well, silica to be precise, but in the service of preserving vaccines. A lot of us will have learned during the pandemic that the new mRNA vaccines need to be kept frozen to prevent degradation. But most conventional vaccines also degrade if they get too warm, a problem in many parts of the world. It was learning about this that got Arzel thinking about physical preservation of vaccine molecules at room temperature.
1: In 2010, I gave birth to my first daughter and I took her to be vaccinated when she was three days old. And I observed that the doctor took out the vaccine from the fridge and injected my daughter. So this is when I started questioning why vaccines have to be stored in refrigerators.
0: I mean, I love that idea. Most of us Oh yeah, thank you for looking after my child. <laughs> you go into a bit of, you start thinking chemistry.
1: Uh, yes, um, I guess it was a little bit crazy. I, I thought this was really interesting. Why? I, I knew pretty much nothing about vaccines apart from that they stop diseases, but I started looking and googling, and I found that vaccines have to be stored in the fridges because if you take them out, they would spoil. The reason why they do so is because all of the amino acids inside them would unfold when you take them out of the fridge. And then I thought, okay, if they unfold physically, is there any way I can use my beloved silica materials, which I've been studying for many years, to stop that unfolding. And that's precisely where the idea of insilication came out from. Because it's very hard to transport and store vaccines even before COVID started. And this, this has been a huge issue in uh, low-income countries where there's no infrastructure or fridge or freezer or even road sometimes. And this leads to a lot of children still dying from vaccine-preventable diseases. So by statistics, it's 1.5 million infants are dying every year from vaccine-preventable diseases. And also WHO is saying that about 50% of the vaccines are spoiled because of the cold chain problems, because that fridge suddenly switched off, or there is no electricity, or there is no road
0: Now, you mentioned silica. When you say silica, I hear sand. So this is basically the same chemistry as sand.
1: Absolutely. Very similar chemistry. So sand is made out of silica. So silica is um, what makes sand. So silica itself, um, the chemical formula of it is silicon O2. So silicon connected to oxygen. So we have silicon oxygen bonds. They're very strong bonds, and that's why the sand uh, is so stable. It's uh, it's very hard to do something to sand. It's very
0: and that's what you're using. If I get this right, you're basically going to entomb your vaccine molecules in little cases of silicon, silica.
1: The analogy is correct. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we are not using sand because sand is not very clean. So what we use, uh, it has similar structure to sand, but obviously, it's much cleaner. So it's made sort of material. And yes, the analogy of entombing is very, very good one because we create a shell, a protective shell out of silica, we, we make it grow on the surface of the vaccine component, for example. Or it can be an antibody component, or it can be something else, a biological. And because it grows on the surface, it basically creates almost like a tailor-made suit, which prevents the vaccine from unfolding and, and subsequent spoilage.
0: I mean, it was a great privilege to come to your labs a few years ago, and you had a beaker of some of this silica stuff, and it was just stirred up. It seemed incredibly simple and very quick. I think the whole process only took about 20 minutes.
1: Mm-hmm. That's correct. Uh, the whole process actually takes even even shorter time now. We've, per, we've been perfecting it, obviously. We've been um, making the process as efficient as possible because we want to incorporate all of the vaccine in, and we want to make the process as short as possible because we don't want the vaccine vaccine out of the fridge for too long. So once it's been insilicated, yes, uh, we can make a powder, or now actually we even can make a suspension of nanoparticles, a colloidal suspension, and that suspension can then be sent around and used uh, all around the world. We've done some experiments where we've sent it to other cities without refrigeration, and then injected uh, into groups of animals, uh, mice uh, in this case, and we've shown that even after being sent by normal post, it did not spoil and it has the same immune response in mice as from a normal vaccine.
0: I mean, it sounds like you've got quite an armory of vaccines and antibodies and so on that you can work with now. What's the next step? How do you get through a famously conservative industry Mm -hmm. to persuade people that it's actually worth doing this? What's what are you doing about that?
1: Yes. So our plan is uh, following. We've decided that it's going to be much easier for us to start with uh, uh, animal vaccines because um, there are a lot more orally deliverable animal vaccines than there are orally deliverable human vaccines. And because silica is already FDA approved for oral delivery, it's going to be a far easier route for us to get into the body. So what we want to do is we want to tackle first orally deliverable animal vaccines And we've already been speaking to the regulatory bodies who said to us, because it's a platform technology, it's going to be far easier for us to get through regulatory hurdles if we can show to them that it works on two or three different vaccines.
0: (laughs) And to be fair, animal diseases are as important in a sense to human health as human diseases are.
1: Absolutely, they are. Because, well, several reasons. One of them being that, well, a lot of the human diseases actually are zoonotic diseases. They're coming from... Mm animals, as as we've seen with COVID and with MERS and SARS and others. And also because if we can prevent a lot of diseases in animals, then we will not need to use a lot of antibiotics in animals too. So in the future, it's going to make much healthier flocks for animals too, to be able to vaccinate them.
0: I mean, I imagine you've talked to the WHO, the World Health Organization, about this. <laughs> How hopeful are they? You know, what yes. do they say
1: to you? We've talked. We, we've actually, uh, last year, we've gone through our IQ, a marketing program, where we've talked to hundreds stakeholders f- from everywhere, from NGOs, from WHO, from biopharma, from regulatory um, organizations. And honestly, every one of them, every one of them said Cold chain is a big problem. Cold chain really needs to be solved. So WHO have been saying to us, yes, that would be a really big step if we can start tackling this together.
0: The, the one other thing that has changed, we've seen the rollout, the big rollout of all the COVID vaccines uh, taken up enthusiastically by two thirds to three quarters of the population. Mm-hmm. But there's big growth in vaccine hesitancy. Mm-hmm. I I don't know whether that's something that you keep an eye on.
1: Absolutely, I do, because especially during pandemic, I've spent a lot of effort countering vaccine hesitancy. It's important because especially what's worrying is that we're seeing the highest levels of vaccine hesitancy in younger populations. And that's really fueled by the social media. That is why I've been working very closely with uh, UNICEF in Kyrgyzstan, for example, to talk about vaccines, to uh, help people to understand how vaccines work, to help people to understand how safe they are, and to show that people who are working on the vaccines are normal people like us. A lot of this, I think, comes to us again, to scientists to really explain it and to uh, make sure that people are informed.
0: Wasn't there something about you getting involved with distributing some of these vaccines, the mRNA vaccine for COVID, through the international network?
1: They offered the first shipment of Pfizer vaccines for Kyrgyzstan It was very small shipments, something like on the order of 50,000. The Minister for Health came out and gave a press conference and said, oh, we we can't possibly take these vaccines because we don't have uh, freezes, minus 80 freezes in the whole country. I spent the whole day lobbying the government and basically talking to um, officials and just saying, please do not say no. Can you just say yes? We can find you free. Honestly, I've been looking up the how much the freezer costs. <laughs> just, just it was crazy. I Spent the whole day on this and eventually got through to the um, vice prime minister. And uh, eventually they've taken the vaccines after that. But um, yeah, it took the whole day to basically to lobby everybody and just to say, just please do not say no at least.
0: But it also brings home this idea that your approach to in- encapsulating vaccines, getting rid of those freezers, make life a lot easier.
1: Absolutely, yes, yes. And I think because I'm working on this, I was able to speak, uh, to, speak to the government about it. Yeah, And um, I'm hoping in the future this is not going to be an issue because we will hopefully insilicate as many vaccines as possible.
0: I'm on my exercise bike following advice from my second guest, Dr. John Campbell. It's good for my muscles, of course, and my lung and blood circulation. But what's new to me is it may help me beat cancer by boosting my immune system. John first learned about this effect through epidemiology, matching cancer rates in the public to their levels of exercise. But now he's working with oncologists and their patients at the Royal United Hospital in Bath to see what he can learn about what's going on. He took me through the story in his office in the University Department
2: for Health. Usually we're told to avoid doing things. Smoking eating unhealthy foods. But here I am telling you to do more of something, which is exercise. The more we exercise, the lower our risk of many cancers and a lower chance of dying of cancer.
0: I mean, it's a very strange connection. First
2: of all, there's evidence for this because you wouldn't be telling me. Absolutely. So in one of the biggest studies done to date, in 1.6 million people monitored for a long period of time, there was a, re- a reduced risk of up to 13 different cancer types. So many different cancer types are reduced in their incidence, but some cancers aren't. But the bit that really fascinates me is if you look at cancer mortality, there is no upper limit observed for the amount of activity that you can do uh, in terms of cancer risk, uh, risk reduction of death. So you exercise lots and lots and lots And you continue to reduce your risk of dying of cancer. Okay, let's wind this back a little bit. So first of all, are you talking
0: about uh, the risk of getting cancer?
2: This is a controversial area in our field. So... If you look at the data, the evidence suggests there is a reduced risk of a cancer diagnosis if you are conducting high levels of physical activity.
0: In other words, I'm less likely to go to the doctor because I've got some kind of issue.
2: Absolutely. But if you look at the types of cancers that are reduced in physically active people, not all are reduced. And this is where it gets a bit complicated. So some of the common Most common cancers, like lung cancer and breast cancer, are reduced in physically active people. And those are very common. I mean, they're the dominant ones, I think. Is that right? That's right, yeah. But another common cancer, prostate cancer, is not reduced in physically active people. Physical activity can be defined as any bodily movement. And it tends to be either planned, so exercising, so going for a run, going for a bike ride. It could also be planned in terms of walking home from work, so commuting. But it also includes things like gardening and taking the bins out. Well, that's good for me,
0: but um, I mean, is it, I suppose, do I need to exhaust myself? I'm not quite sure whether I need to go to the gym and really work out.
2: Yes, yeah, so it's a good point. And not everyone is aware that the World Health Organization and the UK government, the NHS, have set guidance on this. So we should all be trying to achieve a minimum amount of exercise or physical activity a week. So 150 minutes, of moderate intensity exercise or at least 75 minutes of more vigorous intensity exercise. So to answer your question, yeah, y- you should be trying to do some planned activity which gets your heart rate up.
0: So the mechanism, well, a, ca- a cancer is rogue cells running amok. So how does, I don't know, either moving your muscles or breathing deeply or whatever
2: else involved in exercise, what's the connection? So the first thing you said is cancer is rogue cells running am- amok I think and that's effectively it what ha- is happening is healthy cells are acquiring mutations and they start to behave differently from their previously healthy ways what we're finding is that the cells that have the small a smaller number of mutations so those cells that actually look quite similar to their old healthy self they don't seem to be reduced in physically active people. So the risk of those cancers happening isn't reduced in active people. It's only cancers where there are lots and lots of mutations are reduced in physically active people. So that to us is telling us that physical activity is not stopping the early stages of cancer, it's only stopping more advanced stages of cancer. That's really important from a mechanistic point of view because the cancers at the very early stage tend to have lower number of of mutations but that means that they're also less attractive to the immune system as cancer cells acquire more and more mutations they're uh they stand out they stand out yeah that's it and And the immune system will then attack them that's right
0: so in a sense we have we're likely to have lots of incipient cancer cells in our bodies but they're just suppressed
2: by the immune that's it that's exactly it Exercise is doing something to the immune system to keep those cancers in check and stopping them from going on to Be more advanced
0: that to me is really bizarre. I mean, it certainly makes sense to me that If I do lots of exercise, you know, if I'm doing weightlifting or something like that the, the muscles of my <laughs> my arms are going to multiply and get, get to meet a need I would have thought somehow my immune system just sort of ticks over nicely, whatever I'm doing. But it's...
2: It is incredible what would happen if you looked at your immune system in response to doing a running up the stairs, for example. It's one of the most reproducible things in physiology, actually. Your immune cell count in your blood doubles in response to just a very short, sharp bit of exercise. Immune cells come from tissues all around the body into the bloodstream. And then after exercise finishes, those immune cells go off back into different tissues to conduct what we call immunosurveillance. So they're looking for damaged tissues, et cetera. We think that that might be involved in the anti-cancer response from exercise, but you also mentioned muscles. Muscle, when we exercise, does something incredible. It releases proteins which interact with the immune system. And there is evidence that those proteins, muscle mass, being the important factor there, can actually give us a younger looking immune system to actually enable us to perhaps fight cancer better.
0: When you're coming to these conclusions, how much of this is, uh, as it were, a desktop exercise, you're looking at the studies, how much of it is actually seeing the patients in the clinic or meeting them, talking to people about doing the exercise?
2: It's a really important question because we've been able to obtain a lot of information from large epidemiology studies looking at millions of people and how active they are. And we've been able to tell from that that exercise only affects certain cancers and it only affects them once they get to a later stage. But we didn't know at that particular time, well, can we actually invite people with particular types of cancer that we're interested in? Can they actually exercise? Can they exercise regularly? Is it safe? Is it feasible? We have been working on that for the past few years and we found that there is huge enthusiasm for participating in exercise, exercise classes locally at our Royal United Hospital, which, which we've organized and, and, and we conduct supervised exercise for those patients there. And we found that it's safe, exercise has been safe in all of the studies that we've done. And what's fascinated us is that at the end of the, each study, The participants have wanted to continue exercising and they continue to this day exercising with us.
0: That's really interesting. So uh, you've had to work with the local doctors as well as the patients. I mean, the doctors, uh, are are they on board with this?
2: The doctors are so enthusiastic about the opportunities that we are giving the patients and also the clinicians. That Everybody knows that exercise can lead to healthier outcomes generally. But because there is more interest and awareness now of the anti-cancer benefits of exercise, Clinicians are very keen to refer and the patients um, are, are so keen to participate. I
0: mean, it must feel good for you as a, you know an academic in an ivory tower at a fine university, actually to see in front of you the benefits of what you're advocating.
2: It's really nice uh, having all of these tangible outcomes and being able to say to ourselves, look, this is having an impact is is fantastic and the fact that the patients want to continue exercising with us it's a real sort of pat on our backs but I guess what we want to do is go further and show that exercise can actually prevent their cancer from progressing which we haven't yet done but hopefully that's the big impact we'll have in the future.
0: Exercise is at the heart of Professor Harry Rutter's work too. He started as a hospital doctor before moving into public health, founding the National Obesity Observatory. But now in the university's Department of Social and Policy Sciences, his focus is on what governments and local authorities can do to make exercise an everyday thing, removing barriers and building incentives into the roads and town plans around us. We know, he says, what the benefits could
3: be. The benefits of regular physical activity are enormous. Uh, For some work that I've been involved in with the World Health Organization for over 20 years now, the first study we used was a large study from Copenhagen that looked at something like um, 8,000 people over about 15 years. And among the people who were regular cyclists compared to people who were not regular cyclists even when you adjusted for all kinds of other factors in their in their lives whether they smoked or not whether they did leisure time physical activity or not uh, uh, the blood cholesterol even when you adjusted for all of these kinds of things the people who were regularly cycling to work were about almost 30% less di- likely to die in any one given year than the people who were not cycling that's dramatic actually. Absolutely and that includes the elevated risk of getting killed on the roads as a cyclist. Um, So even when that's taken into account and of course that risk is low in Denmark uh, because they've got good infrastructure but even when that's taken into account the the benefits of that regular physical activity are absolutely enormous.
0: I mean it's quite interesting though that's the difference between people who do and who don't cycle so you can see the benefit in terms of Am I going to is- install a cycle lane in my city? Presumably, we we'll also want to know how many people will start cycling if you make that investment. I mean, this, this I presume, is part of the complexity
3: of it all. Absolutely. And um, to some extent, there's a uh, if you build it, people will come point. But uh, it's not just about whether or not you've got decent bike lanes. You've got to think about where the destinations are, how far people have to go, whether they're somewhere secure to lock your bike up at the other end. Um, and, of course, we shouldn't only focus on cycling. Walking is, a, in many ways, a much more important intervention at population level, um, particularly appealing to people from older age groups in whom the added physical activity might be of even greater benefit.
0: And, you know, And So we're talking about travelling, walking, cycling, using cars – But presumably you see these kinds of issues cropping up in all kinds of
3: aspects of our lives and our health. Absolutely. And um, I suppose what I now mostly do in my work is I focus on... The application of ways of thinking about, ways of generating evidence in, ways of um, contributing to policy development and ways of evaluating policies in the context of complex adaptive systems. Explain that Where, a, a complex. So, sort of so the, one of the challenges that we face is that many problems feature multiple, multiple uh, interacting elements but we tend to treat them in terms of those discrete elements, such as, how do I get my bicycle from point A to point B? Well, I need a a carriage on a train. Uh, I would say that we need to step back and see what's the system here, which is actually about mobility, what are the journeys people need to make, and what are the most uh, beneficial, uh, effective, and cost-effective over the medium and long-term as well as short-term, approaches to addressing uh, individual-level mobility and population-level mobility. And what we then see is that that is a set of highly uh, interacting elements. If you change one part of that system, it has ramifications and implications across the rest of the system. And complexity is really about stepping back from just saying, here's a simple linear path from A to B, and addressing, grasping, and um, engaging with the fact that there are many interacting elements. You can't control all of them. You can't fix a complex system, but you can influence parts of that system to try and achieve uh, a a better set of outcomes. One of the features of a complex system is that you get feedback loops. So one of the feedback loops that we've seen, to go back to uh, active travel, is that uh, as parents have become more concerned about road safety, more parents are reluctant to let their kids walk or cycle to school. So more children get driven to school. That puts more traffic on the roads. That makes the roads less appealing for walking and cycling and so on and so forth. So there's a negative or a harmful feedback loop there. Uh But equally, one can push that the other way. And you can see what happens in places like Copenhagen, where that can be shifted around to become a virtuous circle. So the more children who are engaging in active travel to school, the more pressure there is to build decent infrastructure, the more decent infrastructure there is, the more children are walking cycling, and so on and so forth.
0: One of your papers, which I was reading, was written in 2020, and it was looking at uh, public health post-COVID, and there's a sentence in there which showed, talked about how governments around the world had taken on the challenge of COVID. And this boded well for the idea that we would do things better post-COVID. Um, I find it quite interesting that, in a sense, I feel that at the moment we see more actually how hard it is to sustain some kind of effort in terms of improving our health. So, you know, there's a sort of point where people get exhausted by even
3: simple measures. What we were referring to there was the fact that governments around the world had demonstrated that when faced with a huge, urgent challenge, they were able to step up to the plate and take radical action.
0: And it killed probably 15 to 20 million people. So, you know, we're in the same ballpark as these diseases that you're talking about. Uh, and they dealt with it.
3: They did. They addressed it. And... um uh, no, no one got everything right. Plenty of people got lots of things wrong. We will uh, you know, everyone will deal with it differently um, uh, the next time we have a pandemic like that. But whether or not people got things right, there was radical action in countries around the world. We are faced with a uh, a climate and a wider environmental set of emergencies that require action that is at least that radical, um, significantly more radical. Uh, And I guess what we were referring to in that editorial was the fact that governments have shown they can do this. And publics have shown that they are by and large prepared to go along with it. Uh, So uh, there's no starry-eyed optimism here. We realize that this is a very, very difficult set of challenges. But I think what we've seen is at least a glimmer that it is possible. And I suppose what we're arguing for is that that glimmer is um, uh, seized, extended uh, and acted upon so that the the massive threats we face, uh, absolutely in terms of non-communicable diseases, uh, unquestionably in terms of uh, the climate and other environmental emergencies, and crucially, in terms of whatever the next pandemic is going to be, uh, there are opportunities to address all three of those because they all interact. At the moment, we've, we've got a set of things that tend to be working together in harmful ways. There are some real opportunities to flip those around and shift that dynamic so it goes from being a vicious cycle to a virtuous cycle
0: when you're working with the government, when you're working with public health agencies in the UK, do you feel you're having the impact that presumably as a physician, you'd see a patient cured and you'd know, job done?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's, um, who knows? Um, it's it's unquestionably less visible than um, treating someone and seeing, seeing them get better. Uh, it's unquestionably over a much, much longer timescale. And it's also, I mean, not that most doctors do things alone. Most doctors uh, or healthcare is very much a team activity as well as an individual level activity. So, but you know, there there are very very few things that anyone in public health can say I did this. But what we can say is I contributed to this, and um, it's it's hard to disentangle one's uh, individual level contribution in terms of impact, but. Um, i I do it because i want to make a difference and i hope that i do
0: professor harry rutter on the satisfaction of making a difference for people around the world effectively a theme for this episode on some of the work at the university of bath on improving health everywhere and with that thanks for listening to this university of bath podcast research with impact if you want to find out more about the research projects i've been discussing in this episode do visit go.bath.ac.uk slash research with impact, that's with hyphens, or follow at uni of Bath. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, please like and subscribe. See you next time.